Africa likes to throw things at you in like a, a hardcore way. <laughs> and then obviously animals as well. There's dangerous animals around scorpions, snakes, elephants. There was a few nights where I was woke up in my tent in the middle of the night because elephants were stomping past the tent. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 211, UK Adventurer of the Year, Emma Timmis, shares some of her adventurous lifestyle with us today. Welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. Emma Timmis has led a busy life as an adventurer, including winning the UK's National Adventurer Award in 2015 for her run across Africa, which spanned nearly 2,500 miles over 89 days from the Atlantic Ocean to the Indian Ocean. She's with me today to give us some insight to this and her other adventures. Emma, welcome to the show. Hi, Travis. Thanks for having me. Uh, good to have you. So let's dive in. Uh, misadventure. I've been looking to, to see what uh, things you've been up to lately, and you are all over the place. Uh, traveling girl and uh, running and roller skating and doing all kinds of things. So I want to jump in by seeing how it is you got started in this kind of adventure lifestyle. Well, um, completely not deliberate. I never intended to have this lifestyle. I <laughs> wanted to just be normal, but um, I don't know. I don't know. It all just kind of happened, and when one thing leads on to another. So I guess it really started back in 2011 when I was working for the RSPCA. Um, just in case listeners aren't sure what the RSPCA is, it's the Royal Society for Prevention Against Cruelty to Animals. So kind of like being a police officer but dealing with um, animal cruelty and it's a charity in the UK and I was working for them and I really wanted to do something to raise money for the charity and specifically for a wildlife centre that was near me that I was using quite regularly and at the same time of having these thoughts um, Eddie Izzard was running around the UK running loads of marathons I think 41 marathons, 43 marathons, something like that. And he was a lot older than me and he was unfit. And I thought I was quite fit at the time and relatively young. So I decided I was going to do some massive run and decided to run across South Africa. And that was about 1,500 miles, which was about 57 marathons in 57 days. So that was way back in 2011. And that kind of kicked it all off. But I just did that as a fundraising thing for the charity that I was working for, never really intended to do anything else afterwards. And then went back to work straight after that, just carried on my career. And in 2013, somebody that I knew asked me if I'd be interested in running across the whole continent of Africa for a charity that they were involved with in Zimbabwe. So that happened. And then various other adventures have just kind of come from that. And just one thing leads on to another. And like you just said, I am all over the place. I feel like I never stop still at the moment. So that's <laughs> all began, really. Well, it just becomes an addiction, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And I don't know, just more opportunities appear. And um, 
I recently came across a phrase that I saw on the internet and I thought, oh my God, that's actually what I've got. And the phrase is FOMO, which is um, fear of missing out. And I feel like actually that like really struck a chord with me. And I was like, that's what I've got. I've got fear of missing out. If I ever hear about any of my friends that are doing an adventure or if I see a photograph of a beautiful place, I'm just like, I'd need to be there. I want to do that. I don't want to miss out on anything. <laughs> I've completely got FOMO. <laughs> so that's why FOMO. Just, like, it goes on and on and on. That's hilarious. Yeah, it's funny. I've seen that uh, that acronym before and didn't put much thought into it. But now that you you describe it again, I'm, I'm wondering if I have the same problem. I'm thinking, looking at my garage and all of the the hobbies that I built up sitting in that garage right now. My wife is like, "You have too many hobbies. You need to, you know." And they're all adventure oriented. You need to maybe slim a few of those down. But I think doing this show and talking to others and you know you're talking about other adventures and you're thinking well i got to try that of course you know that sounds awesome so yeah that's a that's a real problem i guess i know <laughs> i think maybe this is like an illness or a disease that actually like people that are interested in adventure we have this illness <laughs> that's funny well you could have much worse illnesses so oh, that's it. fomo's okay yeah definitely <laughs> So your your run across South Africa that was on the Freedom Trail, and you were actually the the first female to run the length of this. That's did I read that correctly? Yeah, that's it. Um, I I would have said that I was the first person to run it, but actually, so the Freedom Trail is a mountain bike route, and the person that founded the mountain bike route he ran it while he was trying to decide where the route was going to go. He actually ran the whole route and put it all together in that way. So he. He didn't deliberately run it as like, I want this to be a run that people do or that he was deliberately going out to create a run. It was he was trying to find a route to put the mountain bike track through. Um, so he was the first person that did it. And then it became a mountain bike race. And then when I was looking at where I was going to do my big run that I wanted to do, I contacted him and said, oh, is it possible to run it? And he said, well, it is possible because actually I did it when I was trying to figure out where the route was going to go. So. I think I was probably the first person that ran it as a deliberate, I'm going to run this and going to do it for charity. But he had run it before and obviously had a lot more experience of the area and knew what he was doing probably a lot more than I did. <laughs> well, I imagine, yeah, I think you're right. You're the first person to run the established route. He probably ran around in a lot of little circles trying to figure out which way the route should go. So yeah, I think you yeah. should take that one. <laughs> <laughs> he probably ran a lot more miles than I did trying to figure it all out, yeah. <laughs> right. So that's a, a mountain bike ride. We'll have to check into that and maybe get somebody on that's done that route on a on a mountain bike. That sounds pretty cool as well. Yeah, I think it's pretty hardcore as well. They do it in the winter, and apparently some of the areas have like – six foot of snow that you're trying to push your mountain bike through. So I think, you know, real hardcore people do that. Uh, this is just not packed single track riding. This is grueling from the sounds of it. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, you also did a, a cycling trip to the Dolomites. Can you tell me about how that went about? Yeah. So when I was doing my bigger run across the whole continent of Africa from Namibia to Mozambique, I had, um, somebody with me for support on a bicycle the whole way so literally supporting me right by my side having water and food and first aid equipment there for me when I needed it and as we were running along we were just talking about things that we were going to do the next year and didn't really have many plans of anything exciting for the next year and this person Mike he was actually my climbing partner at the time we'd been climbing together for about three years and we were just thinking what we could do the next year. And we thought, oh, wouldn't it be amazing to go on a climbing holiday or, or a climbing adventure? And the Dolomites had always appealed to me. I wasn't even really sure where the Dolomites was. I'd just seen these amazing pictures of really <laughs> high cliff faces. 
um, and knew that it was called the Dolomites. And I was like, well, I want to go to the Dolomites one day. So we'll figure out where that is and we'll get ourselves there. So that was kind of how that began. And we're both pretty like dirtbag lifestyle people. We don't have a lot of money. We don't do things in a fancy way. We don't stay in hotels. So both me and Mike decided cheapest way to do this and way to make the best adventure out of it would to be both get touring bikes, like pile up all of our kit onto our touring bikes, all of our rock climbing gear, ropes, all the trad climbing equipment, all the metal work, all of our tents, stove, food, water, everything that we would need. And we cycled from Manchester, where we were both roughly living, all the way across Europe to northern Italy through the Dolomites, figured out where it was in the end. Um, so it took us about three weeks to cycle there. And then we had seven weeks just cycling around and around the Dolomites and go into all the amazing climbing places and just climbing some epic long climbs like on a on a daily basis we'd be climbing like between 200 meter and 1000 meter cliff faces and just spending all day out in the sun cycling and rock climbing it was just one of the best things I've done in my life like I always think back on that trip and think that was when I was really happy and really kind of paved the way of thinking this is what I want my life to be like outdoors doing something that I love in the sunshine it was an amazing trip and then after seven weeks of climbing there we started to cycle back but the weather had turned quite bad so we actually cheated a little bit on the way back we only cycled halfway back and then got a lift because the weather was so horrible (laughs) cycle touring in the rain is just not fun when everything that you're wearing is soaked and then you don't have anywhere to dry anything we were wild camping it's not like we had access to like shelter to dry stuff so it was pretty miserable we cheated a little bit on the way back but yeah i think so. that's okay <laughs> <laughs> well the load that you took for all with all the climbing gear and everything it must have been heavy enough but then you get it soaked down by rain and now you're you're a third heavier <laughs> yeah it was so it heavy i mean my bike's 15 kilos before there's anything on top of it and i think with all the gear my bike was about 50 kilos so then yeah like you say when that's wet it's just not fun i mean it's hard enough as it is i'm only under just under 60 kilos so trying to pedal a bike that's almost the same weight is really hard work wouldn't recommend it really. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny well were you uh how much of a cyclist were you before taking on this journey um not particularly a cyclist really i've always cycled it's something that i've always done throughout my life usually as a way of getting from a to b because you know like i said i don't really have a lot of money so i tend to find the cheapest way to do anything if i was going to work or even going to school i rode my bike to school pretty much every day um and my brother is currently cycling around the world and when he left in 2010 he's been going for like six and a half years which was never his intention but (laughs) when he left in 2010 I went and met him in Turkey um probably about eight months into his trip I went and met him in Turkey and cycled halfway across Turkey with him and just that freedom of being on the bike and deciding where you want to go or I'm going to stop now and eat some food or maybe I don't want to cycle tomorrow I'm just going to rest in this place because it's beautiful I just really thought from experiencing a little bit of his journey it really put like a a bit of a desire in my head that I wanted to do some cycle touring and experience that freedom and the beauty of just having such a simple life and traveling around amazing places so it was something I've wanted to do and I still want to do more actually I think it's a really good way to travel if you're passionate about traveling and about adventure and about fitness then it it combines all of those things and I just think it's a really lovely really simple way to travel 
Yeah, I would absolutely agree. I, I can relate to that. You know, I've gotten back into mountain biking. Um, you know, I used to ride a lot now and I was off of the mountain bike for quite a while. My son has gotten back into it, which drew me back into it. And now, you know, after riding and, and doing some more grueling rides, I keep thinking after, you know, talking to people who are doing bike packing and looking at these long trips, um, that I want to start putting trips together next year just to start touring on the mountain bike, because you're right. You know, you get a chance to slow down like that. You can really see your world in a, in a different light and it's a simple way to go. It's economical and it's uh, there's, there's not much that's better than that. Yeah. I think, oh, I don't know. There's, there's something else about cycling that I don't know if this is just, just me that feels this or if everyone feels it, I really have no idea. But as soon as I get on a bike, I just feel like a child again. Like, freewheeling down a hill and just like the breeze <laughs> going past your skin and I don't know there's just something really childish about it that's just such a lovely feeling <laughs> makes you feel like a kid again it absolutely does well you're right I mean we we learned to ride bikes when we were kids and then we grew up and we you know ended up driving cars and getting jobs and doing all this adult stuff but yeah. the bicycle takes you back to your childhood you know nobody ever forgets how to ride a bicycle and no. yeah I agree that is part yeah. of it it's so good. It's just, yeah, it makes me feel really amazing. I love it. That's cool. Well, one of these days I'm going to track down your brother Lee and uh, and get his thoughts on his, his seemingly perpetual ride around the world at this yeah. point. Yeah. And I wanted to give your dad a, a shout out, Ken, who tipped uh, <laughs> tipped me off to uh, to you guys and, and your adventurous lifestyle. So thank you, Ken, for uh, for for recommending these guys. So. Oh, yeah. Cheers, Dad. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the award they alluded to in the intro um you were awarded the the uk national adventurer of the year award in 2015 and this was for running across africa which again it was 89 days and almost 2500 miles let's talk about that a little bit one did you know that you were going to get the award or were you surprised by it i was completely and utterly surprised by it i really didn't expect to win it at all i was actually in australia at the time when the awards were um, being given out when the ceremony was happening and a friend of mine went to the ceremony and she we spoke to each other um the day before or a couple of days before and she said oh I'm just I'm I'm thinking about you know if, if you win the award what should I say do you want me to give a shout out to anyone and I was like seriously Emily don't even think about it. definitely <laughs> not happening <laughs> like don't worry yourself there's a free bar just go and have some drinks <laughs> you know <laughs> you don't need to stress about anything it's not going to happen because i'd looked through the, the other people i was up against and they'd all done such amazing things and the category that i was in was for physical endeavor and from what i could see about these other people i, I thought everything that they'd done was way more physically demanding and hardcore and People were doing things alone without a support team and just, I don't know, I just thought everything else looked way more hardcore, did not expect to win at all. So then when I got a message the next day saying you won it, I just, I couldn't believe it. But I was so happy because I just didn't, yeah, I didn't think that anyone knew anything about my run. I didn't, yeah, I didn't expect anything at all. And it was so nice. I was really grateful, but yeah, was not expecting it whatsoever. <laughs> That's cool. Well, at least you had a little bit of an inkling about what it was and, and that you, you could be up for it. Because I, I think if I got that, that notification, I would think it was probably a scammer just trying to figure out how to how to mail me a, a big, large check that they were yeah. going to somehow take back out of my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I, yeah, I was really shocked. And I probably would have thought exactly the same as you. I'd be like, yeah, whatever. They don't really <laughs> think of me like that. It's not going to be me. Yeah, no, it was really cool. 
Try Paleo Meals to Go freeze-dried backpacking meals. The wholesome gluten-free ingredients follow the paleo diet, providing you with the lasting energy you require on your adventures. Visit www.paleomealstogo.com and enter TACK25 at checkout to save 25% off your order. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for more than 20 years. Fall is here, but the mountains are still open for great hiking and climbing. Time to break out the hiking boots, rock climbing shoes, and tents. Gear materials and designs are more evolved than ever. From the latest ultralight gear to the tried-and-true classics, Bentgate has the premier brands for climbing, hiking, and camping essentials, including Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice on destinations, getting started, or on fine-tuning your quiver of gear? The Bentgate staff are all passionate adventurers who can give you the data and advice you need. Bentgate is also hosting numerous events and speakers this summer, so please check out their events page at bentgate.com for more information as well as to see their full product selection. Okay, so that was for your run across Africa. Tell us a little bit more about that, some of the, the highs and lows of that journey, because that's, uh, that's no small endeavor. No, um, it's funny. I've just been reading through my diary that I wrote about it while I was, while I was on the adventure. I wrote a diary every day because I've got a terrible memory, <laughs> like a really, really terrible memory. You would think there's something so significant as running across a continent. You'd remember it. But actually, <laughs> I've got such a bad memory. I can't remember things. So I've just read through my diary over the past week. Um, and I, I think I'd blocked out how much pain I must have been in because when I've thought about it in the past, I've been like, yeah, you know, my knees were kind of aching a lot. But you know, you just get on with it, push on through. But reading through the diary, it's like, oh, today my ankles are swollen. They can hardly move. I'm really stiff. The next day, oh, I've got this big lump swollen behind my knee. Hopefully it'll go away. <laughs> Every day was like some different injury and different pain that I was feeling, which I didn't actually remember. But um, now reflecting on it, I think, oh, I was in a lot of pain, actually. Maybe my body's not made for running. Um, so, yeah, the, the physical side of things it was really tough, but I think my body kind of got used to the pain after about 50 days. Um, my body kind of realized what I was doing and it was like, oh, she's going to make us run every day. We're used to this now, so we can just do it. So after about 50 days, it all got a lot easier. But the first month and a half um, was pretty tough physically, just getting used to what I was doing and putting myself through that strain and the weather was quite up and down as well. I guess you would probably expect Africa just all to be really hot and really dry, but it wasn't like that at all. We started on the west coast in Namibia and the middle of the day was really hot and really dry and really windy as well. Um, but at night time it was freezing because it's, it's kind of like a desert there and it gets really cold at night, which wasn't something that I was particularly expecting. And then running all the way across to the east where it was more like a jungle kind of environment really hot really humid and then at night time the humidity just didn't go away so trying to sleep in a tent at night was really hard when you're just so hot just reading through my diary then 
quite a few days towards the end, I was saying that in the morning I was just waking up in a pool of my own sweat because it was just so humid that just sweating throughout the night, just lying still all night with no clothes, no sleeping bag, just the inside of the tent, not even got an outer on and you're just boiling hot. So trying to get some sleep was really tricky as well. Just everything like Africa likes to throw things at you in like a, a hardcore way. <laughs> um and then obviously animals as well. There's dangerous animals around scorpions, snakes, elephants. There was a few nights where I was woke up in my tent in the middle of the night because elephants were stomping past the tent. Um, obviously, that's a bit of a concern, but nothing happened in the end, thankfully. And yeah, just temperatures were incredibly hot. One of the people on the support team got really, really ill because it was so hot. I think they got a bit of a stomach infection, but I guess due to the heat that you're living in, um, everything just seems 10 times worse. And then they ended up in hospital on a drip and was pretty ill. But the whole thing was quite incredible. Yeah, lots of highs, lots of lows, which a lot of them I'd forgotten about, but reading them all in my diary now. (laughs) I can't imagine running in, in heat like that. Like you said, you're just sweating at the end of it. And, you know, most of us go out and we have a hard workout and, you know, we sweat it up, but then you get to come home and have a refreshing shower and, you know, then maybe go out and do it the next day. But to do that 89 days, day after day after day in that kind of heat and don't really have those facilities. I'm sure maybe you had it a, a few times along the trip, but for the most part, you don't have it. And to sit there and try to lay, <laughs> lay in your tent, trying to fall asleep like that would be it would be absolutely miserable. Yeah, it is. And um, one of the things that I'd actually forgotten about, but recently just reread over, was that I was carrying um, a running vest with water in, like a backpack with water. But because it was so hot, I was constantly sweating and then the sweat was drying into the backpack and then forming like salt crystals on the backpack. And that was then rubbing against my back and my chest and then rubbing my skin and I was getting open sores and I was having to stop wearing that and ask my cyclist to carry water for me because it it was just causing an injury. Um, And then also my running shorts, I had previously been getting a sports massage from one of the support team but they'd just been using cooking oil because we didn't have massage oil out in Africa and the cooking oil had actually soaked up into my running shorts and then the shorts kind of became like a a crispy kind of oily just horrible <laughs> mess <laughs> and then in the boiling heat in the middle of the day they were actually burning my legs because the oil was getting so hot in the shorts these are all just things that you wouldn't even think about. Like, there's no way you would have ever imagined that would happen. But there were horrible things like that that I was having to deal with. It wasn't just the fact that you're running in a really hot place. And like you said, you know, you're not going to go somewhere at night and be able to wash everything. So these like salt crystals that were forming on my vest, they just stayed there. We didn't have enough water to spare for washing things like that. The water we had was for drinking. And that was the priority. So there's just, yeah, a million and one other little tiny things that you wouldn't ever think about that were really irritating things. <laughs> That's funny. So when you got offers, future offers for massages, you just said, no, no, you keep your yeah. cooking oil. I'm good to go. <laughs> yeah, I've already been cooked now. <laughs> I'm nice and posted. Leave me alone. <laughs> I'm well done. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Well, I think there was a, a funny story about how Sarah Williams uh, from the Tough Girl podcast got you to do the uh the Hadrian's wall run yes. can you tell that 
So um, just to let all your listeners know, at the moment, I'm on day 22 of a detox. I've given up alcohol for a whole month. I'm on day 22. (laughs) I'm trying to be very strong. So a few months back, I went to Sarah's house for a dinner party and I arrived there earlier than everyone else. So she cracked open a bottle of wine. I'm quite fond of my drink. So by the time anyone else had arrived, I'd probably drank about a bottle's worth of wine. And she'd have probably about the same. <laughs> Perfectly primed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then um, we were just talking about plans for the year. And I was heading off to Africa for the summer, but then returning to the UK later. And she was like, oh, I've had these ideas that I've wanted to do for a while. I've been looking at Hadrian's Wall. Do you want to come? And I was like, yeah, let's do it you know i've drank about a bottle of wine i can't possibly say no and i've got fomo <laughs> i've got serious fomo disease fear of missing out so yeah let's do it and that was that like we made that little plan and then didn't really speak about it to each other whatsoever until about a month before we were going to do it i sent her a quick message and said uh is this really on are we actually doing this is this a serious thing i was a bit drunk and she was like yeah i'm dead keen and then that was it again didn't really have any communication again until about a week before and we're like are we still doing it like yeah 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 we're doing it and that was that like seriously small amount of planning she had some maps she had a book my boyfriend was the support driver in the car he'd got a car so that was that off we went and we did it it was pretty cool it is cool. It's funny. What is Hadrian's Wall? For for us on the west end of the, the world, We uh, most of us don't know what that is. Can you explain that a little bit? Oh, now you're testing my history. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe, I'm not entirely sure, but um, it's a very old historic wall that goes east to west across the UK, but it doesn't actually reach the ocean on either side. I think the wall itself is maybe 50 or 60 miles, but the walk that you do, it's like a, a well-known walking trail is 84 miles. So the wall doesn't go the whole way. But it was, I think it was originally a boundary dividing England and Scotland from way back yonder when they did those kind of things. Um, so the wall is there. And then because there's a lot of history behind it and people like to go to the UK and see all of our historic things, castles and walls, etc. They, um, the I, I don't know if it's the National Trust that have done it or some national trail um, people, but they've they've created basically a trail that follows the wall and you can stop along the way and see various bits. And then there's bits of information that you can read up on and you can also get a little passport thing that you stamp along the way. So, <laughs> you know, adds a little bit of excitement. You're going to go and get your next stamp. And yeah, lots of people walk it. I think most people would walk it in about a week. And along the way, you, there's there's lots of um, bus companies that can move your kit for you. So you don't need to carry a big pack. A lot of people do do it carrying a big pack. Um, you can stay in hotels. There's campsites along the way. I guess it's like a very, very small version of like the Appalachian Trail or Pacific Crest Trail, but a very, very small version. Um, it's like a British version of that small and quaint. Yeah, but lots of people do it. And I'd never really been to that part of the country so when Sarah asked me to do it I thought that'd be a really good thing to do because you know I probably would never have a reason to go to that area otherwise and you know finding these trails and then deciding to visit a different part of your own country is is a really good way to see somewhere I think a lot of people definitely I'm one that's guilty of this you don't see your own country you go and travel to different countries to get a different Mm -hmm. experience and a different climate and actually there's amazing things right on your doorstep, but sometimes you just don't appreciate it. 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. Well, we all get the FOMO disease and we want to go overseas where everybody else is going. And yeah, we forget to look around in our own area. That's true. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm trying to make a bit more of an effort to see parts of my own country because actually it is beautiful. I think just the downside with the UK is our weather. You never know if it's going to be dry for more than a day at a time. <laughs> right. Well, you just just roll with the punches, get used to it, right? Yeah, I know. I need to get more hardcore, <laughs> get used to the rain and the cold. I've spent too much time in Africa. <laughs> yep. Well, you alluded to uh, doing these trips on a budget and just trying to find simple ways to doing them uh, earlier on. Can you give some advice or things that you've figured out uh, for people that who want to do these kind of things but don't have a large bankroll or you know or, or sponsors to fund them? Yeah, I would say like the cheapest way that I've found to do things is to be self-sufficient. I think when people think about doing a different adventure, they think, okay, so how am I going to fly to this place? How can I afford to fly? How can I afford to stay in hotels or even cheaper? How can I afford to stay in a hostel? But the way that I've done it is kind of more that you spend a bit more money to start with, which might be spending a, a decent amount of money on a tent but then hopefully that tent's going to last you for 10 years or so. I don't know. So that when I go away, I generally don't spend much money on accommodation. I do a lot of wild camping. Um, but then, you know, some people might be comfortable doing that and some people not, might not be. But that's definitely a way to make it cheaper. And obviously, you know, there's lots of sites like eBay and things like that. You can get cheap equipment now. Most areas have a Facebook page selling outdoors gear like that people have bought and don't want anymore so you know if you wanted some hiking boots I recently sold my hiking boots on eBay and someone paid four pound for them they'd cost me 160 quid so <laughs> someone got a right bargain but I think wow. lots of people you know lots of people must be getting bargains like that so there are ways to do things but even you know saying that that I sold my hiking boots if you wanted to go on a walk I don't think you necessarily need hiking boots I think people often get stuck thinking oh I want to I want to go and hike somewhere or cycle somewhere or run somewhere. What equipment do I need? Do I need the best equipment? But actually you can do things with, with very basic equipment. I don't think you need to, to have all of these things. I know people like to buy stuff. I think that's a thing nowadays, isn't it? People like to buy things. There's, I've noticed all different running gadgets that you can buy nowadays. But I remember when I started running like 20 years ago, I started running because it was cheap and simple. You didn't need to buy anything. You just put your shoes on and off you went. But now there's all these things. I think people like to buy stuff and maybe that's something that would discourage them from going out and having a, a cheap adventure because they think I need to buy more things. But actually you can do a lot very cheaply. Um, you know, I've got a stove, like a camping stove. So when I've been on like my cycle trip to the Dolomites, we were just cooking pasta on the stove each night. You know, that's very, very cheap. It barely cost anything to do that every day buy yourself a bag of pasta or a bag of porridge and that can last for I don't know a bag of porridge a kilo of porridge probably last you a week if not more for breakfasts and that's I don't know a couple of dollars I guess so you know things can be cheap if you if you want it to be cheap it can be cheap but I think don't look for excuses not to do it because an excuse not to do it could be oh, I haven't got the money but you know you can you can find things cheaply you could buy a secondhand bike and just strap your backpack onto the bike and then go on an adventure. You don't need to be buying an expensive bike. You don't need expensive panniers. You can do things cheaply, definitely. Yeah, absolutely true. Good advice. Well, you know, and in, in I think if you watch and you follow the people that always have to have the newest toy, they're always 
ready to get rid of their old toy, which is new to you and still great quality. Yeah. Um, they're willing to get rid of that cheaply because they need to pay back a little bit of the expensive one they just bought. So yeah. watch those people. And, <laughs> and wait, wait for the, them to pitch their old stuff, which is yeah. uh, perfectly good to use. So yeah. good advice. Yeah. This is Colorado nature photographer John Fielder. This holiday season, consider giving the gift of Colorado. I have an extraordinary 6,000 square foot gallery in Denver's Art District on Santa Fe Drive. This season, I've framed for display my favorite and latest Colorado wilderness images. The detail inherent in these seven foot prints from recent summer treks into the Weminucci and Ragged's wilderness series will make you feel like you were right next to me when they happened. And my new prints from last year's remarkable fall color season will add warmth and a focal point to any home or office setting. The gallery has a full selection of my popular Colorado books, calendars, and holiday and note cards. Most are signed personally by me. My latest book is Wildflowers of Colorado, a collection of my favorite wildflower images made over the past 20 years. I even discuss where I go to photograph the best wildflower meadows in northern, central, and southern Colorado. Just don't tell me if you get a better photo than me. The gallery is located in Denver at 833 Santa Fe Drive. We're open Tuesdays through Saturdays, 9 to 5. Visit johnfielder.com for complete information about the gallery, print pricing, to see all of my books and calendars, and to learn about the photography workshops I'll teach around Colorado in 2017, and even the one at Alaska's Inside Passage next July. That's at johnfielder.com. talk about um women invent women in adventure um unfortunately i think we hear a lot about you know women wanting to go out and partake in these things but just too afraid to do it you know a lot of horror stories out there about the dangers and everything and i wanted to to talk to you obviously you're uh, out there doing these things and there are things that can happen to us dodging elephants and spooking scorpions on the hunt <laughs> those kind of things but the real dangers really aren't there. What can you, what can you uh, tell the the audience about your adventures and make them feel, you know, inspired and safe to get out there and do these kind of things and not hold back because of the fear? Um, I recently did a walk in Australia that was, um, it was about a month, a month of living out in the wilderness and. I hardly saw any people when I was on this walk and at night I was just pitching my tent wherever I finished walking and sleeping there and I got a message from my mum a text message from my mum and she was like I hope you're sleeping okay and you're not too scared sleeping in your tent alone at night in the middle of nowhere and actually I'd been having really great sleep I'd been sleeping so well and it hadn't even crossed my mind to be concerned about anything um and my response to my mum was I'm not worried about anything. I'm sleeping really great because there's no people here. And I think 
the thing that would worry me most of all, but actually I'm not even worried about that, is that there'd be somebody out there that would want to do something bad to me. But that is very rare and very unlikely. But if you are taking yourself off into the wilderness, you know, how likely is it there's going to be people around? There's probably no one around. Like this walk that I did in Australia was out in the middle of nowhere. And I just thought, actually, there's there's nothing that can hurt me, really, because any creepy crawlies or whatever that you'd think might go into your tent, well, I've zipped them out. I've made sure my tent is completely zipped. They're not coming in. There's no people around here. They're not going to break into my tent and steal anything. And I don't think people would do that anyway, because you'd have to be a really bad person to steal a tent or an item off of someone that's camping. You know, they've clearly got nothing with them anyway. So I think it is just mostly... It's it's in your head. You're feeling like you're on your own and that something might happen. But if you actually stop and think realistically, is anything going to happen? It's it's very unlikely. And the amount of people that you see nowadays that are going out and camping in the wilderness and nothing's happening to them. You know, I, I don't think there's much to worry about. But then I wouldn't want to say that to someone and then they go out and something awful happens to them. <laughs> but I just, yeah, I don't see that it does happen. And if anything, I think sometimes being a female on your own it's kind of more of a benefit because you'd have to be a really, really bad person to steal something off of a lone female or to say something horrible to a lone female or to attack a lone female. That's only really, really bad people are going to do that. And actually, the amount of really, really bad people in the world is very minimal, I believe. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Well, I think you have to look at things statistically. You know, we're we're somehow all willing to hop in our car and and go down the the interstate, the highway to go to our desk job, you know, where we sit still all day long and obviously risk heart disease and and all that kind of stuff yeah. and but you risk automobile accidents, which statistically are much uh, more likely to happen than something happening out in the wilderness, like you're saying, you know, but we're we're somehow willing, willing to do that, but we're not willing to go into the wilderness where you are, you are completely safe. I mean, statistically you are completely safe. So it's, it's a mindset. You just have to reverse that mindset and, and let yourself relax about it. Yeah. And actually something that I've found over time, the more time that I've spent in my tent in the wilderness, I actually find it really, really relaxing now. And I sleep way better when I'm in my tent and just out in the in the wild, in the forest or up a mountain or something. I sleep a lot better in my tent. And I don't know if it's just, you know, getting used to it and knowing actually I am really, really safe here and I'm close to nature. And I don't know, maybe it's even something to do with, you know, there's not all these electronic things buzzing around my head like you might have in your house. You're just out in the wild. And I find it really, really peaceful now. And hopefully if somebody is inspired to go out and to start camping in the wild, hopefully they would, after a little while of doing it, the anxiety would go away and they would feel more relaxed and then go, actually, yeah, this is really, really nice. I'm very chilled and I'm sleeping better and I'm at one with nature. Hopefully that would like come to you as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, how about a a fun little story? I there's one about uh roller skating across the Netherlands called The Greatest Skate. So, let us in on that one a little bit. What happened there? Yeah, so when all the preparation was going on for running across Africa, obviously that's a huge event. There was a lot of training involved and a lot of preparation, lots of organization. And I was living in Manchester with one of my very good friends, Emily, and we were sitting down in the evening just chatting and saying, you know, 
it's going to be a real adventure. It's going to be very exciting, but so much preparation has gone into it and it's such hard work. And, you know, I really wanted to encourage women to feel that they can go and have an adventure. Obviously, lots of women have children and they've got childcare issues and need to be around for their kids going to school. And my, my best friend, Emily, is the same. She's got a daughter. We were saying, when I've done my run, let's go and do an adventure that's really low budget, really good fun, something that maybe we've not done before, not done for a long time, and a short adventure that you could fit into a school holiday to try and inspire other women to think, actually, I want to have an adventure. What can I do? It doesn't need to be a long way away. I've got childcare problems, but um, I can squeeze it into a school holiday, this kind of thing. So the idea came about because I think Emily had recently been to her daughter's 14th birthday party, which was a roller skate party. And she was saying how fun it was. She hadn't been on roller skates other than that at all, I don't think. And I'd been on roller skates when I was younger. I used to quite enjoy it. But I probably stopped doing that when I was about 10. Um, so we kind of put all these ideas together and we thought, well, let's go on a little roller skate adventure. That'll be fun. Something we've not done for a long time, but we can learn. You know, we're, we're relatively good at learning things. We're human beings. We can teach ourselves new skills. So we thought, well, where's really flat? <laughs> or downhill for that matter <laughs> <laughs> um so obviously the netherlands or holland um whichever you call it um is quite a flat country and they've got a really good system of cycle lanes going through the whole country so it all kind of works out well with that so we just thought well we'll roller skate across the netherlands and we had to pick where we were going to and from. It didn't really matter. We just wanted to go across the country. So we found a place on the east of the country called Overdinkel. And we just thought that sounds really funny. So we'll start from there because <laughs> we like the sound of that name. <laughs> you know, very serious preparation went into this, obviously. So we started from Overdinkel and then we just headed west to the coast. Uh, we made a rough plan of where we would go and roughly how much distance we would do each day. And because we wanted to keep it on a budget, we decided to use couch surfers. Do you have couch surfers in the US? We do, yeah. yeah? Yep. So obviously an online um, facility where you can find an area and see if there's somebody that wants to allow you to stay in their house for free. Maybe you offer to cook them a meal. Um, they might teach you something about their culture. And yeah, so we used couch surfers and I just wrote to a load of people that were along the route that we were going. Um, obviously, a lot of people would respond and say, sorry, that time isn't convenient or it's just not possible. And that's fine. But then other people wrote back and they were like, yeah, we'd love to have you, you crazy roller skating English people come to our house. So we managed to go the whole way across the Netherlands, which took a week. We did it the whole way without spending any money whatsoever on accommodation. Wow. Um and didn't really have to spend much money on anything else. We've got some really cheap supermarkets in Europe, so <laughs> you know it didn't really cost too much money for our food either. And we had a great time. We met such a different array of people. Like we stayed with students, we stayed with people that hardly had any money, we stayed with people that have got a lot of money. We we did all kinds of different accommodation and met all kinds of different people, and it was just a fantastic way to do it. And just a, a load of fun, really, just roller skating, because it's it's a bit daft, isn't it, roller skating? There's now. <laughs> so it was just fun. It is, and I love that word daft. I have to – am I allowed to use that over here in the United States? Because I think it's so funny. Yeah, go for it. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, there you go. Perfect tip for an inexpensive adventure you can do on your own. You don't have to put much money into it. And I imagine you can probably find roller skates pretty darn cheap on, on eBay or Craigslist. So <laughs> good idea. I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, good deal. I've loved listening to your adventures. I've had a smile on my face the entire time talking to you. It's been uh, been great. And I did want to give Sarah Williams another shout out because I did notice that uh, you were on her episode or, or on her podcast as well. And if you guys in the audience have enjoyed listening to Emma, then you'll love Sarah Williams' uh, podcast. So she talks to uh, women from all over the adventure world for uh, inspiration as well, just like we do. So go check her out as well. And uh, it's fun that you guys are hanging out and doing things together. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Yeah. All right, Emma. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. I loved hearing about your adventures and I can't wait to see what you do next. Oh, thank you so much. Keep in touch. I'll update you. Absolutely. You do the same. <laughs> Cheers. All right. Thanks. <laughs> You have heard all the hype around paleo, low-carb, organics, diet powders, and the lot. How does one sort out what really works? Good news. Gary Collins has done the homework for you. Regain and maintain your health and live that life of vitality. Learn more at primalpowermethod.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.